today we continue a um, series of sermons about seven signs, about the seven signs in John's gospel. Uh, signs is John's word for miracles. And John acknowledges everywhere that Jesus did many miracles. He did many signs. But he picks out seven for us to look at closely and in detail. Jesus turning water into wine. Jesus healing the royal official's son. Jesus healing the invalid at at the pool at at Bethesda. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Jesus walks on water. Jesus gives sight to the man born blind. And Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, the sign that we looked at last week. So actually, in terms of this sermon series, we've run out of signs. However, we've also noticed along the way that a number of these signs prompt discussion or conversation. And we've looked at those conversations along the way as well. And this series of sermons therefore continues today uh, as we look at how the raising of Lazarus keeps on coming up in conversation as Jesus approaches and then enters Jerusalem um, uh, with the great crowds in keeping with Jewish tradition as the entire Jewish world prepares to celebrate its most important of all of its feasts and festivals, the Feast of Passover. Um, And then, uh, in terms of this sermon series, for us now, over Easter, next weekend, we we will continue to look, uh, not so much at the signs, but we'll look at the things to which these signs, these seven signs pointed. Uh, Because a sign, of course, its, its power is that it points away from itself to a destination. So we'll look at the destination next weekend. Uh, when we when we get to Easter. Because now, for us as Christians, we are preparing to celebrate the most important of all of our feasts and festivals, Easter. And today is Palm Sunday. It's the last Sunday of Lent, the last day before the start of Holy Week. Well, uh, given that it's Palm Sunday, um, compared to the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John gives us a very, very short and very abbreviated description of what's sometimes called Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, His account is, at the most, only a third the length of the other three accounts. Um, Compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, well, John ditches telling us about how Jesus came to be in possession of a young donkey in the first place, and he doesn't bother to tell us about uh, the the Pharisees and their reaction to the fuss that was made of Jesus, nor does he tell us about the children, and he doesn't tell us about the disciples and what they're doing. Um, John knows that we already know all of this from the other Gospels. So he preserves for us just the essential details. That... On entering Jerusalem, the great crowd that was gathered for the Passover, Jews from all over the known world, they went out to meet Jesus with palm branches, waving and shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! And with these words, 
which essentially come from Psalm 118, but from other places in the Old Testament as well, with these words, the crowd is proclaiming their belief that Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah, a king who will rule the whole world, a king who comes as a gift from God, a king who obeys God in everything and therefore makes manifest the rule of God, brings in the kingdom of God. This is the Christ, the Messiah, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. And uh, we already know from the other three Gospels that Jesus does work. He, he works himself so as to affirm this belief. He acts so that his entry into Jerusalem on this occasion is in fulfillment of a prophecy made by Zechariah, son of Bechariah. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice exceedingly, daughter of Zion! The daughter of Jerusalem shouts, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and saving. He is poor, in the sense of being weak or humble. He is poor and mounted on a donkey, upon a colt, son of a donkey. And he will cut off chariots from Ephraim and horses from Jerusalem. And they will be cut off the bow of war. And he speaks peace to the nations. And he will rule from sea as far as sea and from the river as far as the ends of the earth. Now, even though the disciples are leading and participating in all of this action, they, they, they source the donkey, they throw off their cloaks and put them on the ground, they, they wave palm branches and, and they praise and exalt Jesus in response to all the signs and miracles they had seen. The disciples are doing this, yet and nevertheless they were completely unconscious to the fact that in doing these things, Old Testament scripture and prophecy were being fulfilled. For John tells us, verse 16, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him? So then, the glorification of Jesus is the key. It is the interpretive key. It is the thing that makes seeing and believing possible. So, 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 that, so then, when, when was Jesus glorified and how does that help us to see? Well, we'll find out in a minute. But before we get there, John has other things to tell us. He tells us that uh, Jesus' raising of Lazarus was particularly important in all of this fuss and hysteria. Um, uh, th th that sign had been done only recently, seven days earlier, and close by, walking distance in the village of Bethany. And it really was the most staggering of all of the signs, somebody dead coming back to life. And the, the Pharisees see this, this, rising, this rising riot and, and they say to one another, we're going backwards here. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And we already know that the, the, the raising of Lazarus was indeed the last straw for the Jewish religious establishment of Jerusalem. They interpret all of these 
events politically. A, a, a Messiah movement, a Messiah movement is rebellion against Caesar in Rome. If, if the Romans get wind of this, if the, if the Romans hear about this, this happy, happy riot going out there, but that people are proclaiming the king of Israel, this is rebellion. They'll come and destroy us. Jesus just has to go. Now, almost as proof that the whole world has indeed gone after him, John immediately tells us, verse 20, Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, in, in a sacrificial love. Verse 24, Very truly I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So this is how Jesus will rule. This is how he will reign, by dying for others. Jesus, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the one who represents God. Jesus shows us what God is is like. He will be glorified. In other words, we will see the glory of God. We will see the full glory of God, the eternal beauty of God. We will see and behold the beauty of God when we see the man, Jesus of Nazareth, naked and bleeding on a cross. And we return to that idea in five days' time. But this is precisely what the crowds, the disciples, and the Pharisees don't and can't see. For them, Jesus as king, it means the imminent defeat of the Roman occupiers and and freedom. Free at last! Free at last! Freedom. Political freedom. That's what they think this means. And isn't that what Zechariah prophesied? I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. And it's easy and it's logical and it's natural to read that as saying, I will save the people of Israel from all of her foreign oppressors, the Egyptians, Syrians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks and Romans. I will get their chariots and war horses and bows and arrows out of the promised land. Hooray! And that's exactly what everybody's expecting Jesus to do right now as king of Israel. But Zechariah's Hebrew is as ambiguous as it is in English. And it can just as easily be understood as, I will take away Ephraim's chariots, Jerusalem's war horses, and I will break Israel's bow and arrows. And actually, that is the better way of understanding Zechariah because he proclaims clearly, this king is poor, humble, lowly, riding in on a young donkey. This is a very different type of king. And he will proclaim peace to the nations. This is indeed a king who will proclaim peace to the nations 
and he will do it by way of the least popular policy ever, unilateral disarmament, a no-deal Brexit. He's, the disarmament's going to begin with the people of God and just hope that others follow suit. He, he, he will lead the people of God in disarming. He will call it loving your enemies. And he's about to show us how it is done. And unless we see that, we can't see Jesus at all. We, we won't see him. We won't meet him. If, if you don't get the cross, you don't get Jesus. But for today, we can't end there because actually if we don't get the cross, we don't get ourselves and we don't understand who we are and we don't understand what to do and we don't understand what we're about. Because anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. The, the message is that we must, likewise, we, we go to the cross, living lives of sacrificial love, suffering for enemies, loving our neighbors. The message is given, firstly, in the form of a proverb. The, the, the one who loves their life will lose it, and the one who hates their life in this world will keep it. Um, something we've got to understand about this is that the words love and hate in the Bible, um, they usually have in mind most strongly actions rather than feelings or emotions. For, for us, somebody who says, I hate my life, what they mean is that they're suffering and they're in distress and that they're feeling anxious, fearful, depressed, or in despair. Jesus is not asking us to have a really bad time. He's not asking us to make ourselves miserable. No, rather, this is about actions. You see, the one who loves something acts so as to treasure it and hold on to it. And the one who hates something acts so as to throw it away, regards it as worthless, as rubbish. So the message comes to us as a parable, as a proverb, and as a paradox. The one who holds on to something fiercely, guarding it as their treasure, will actually lose it. But the one who throws it away as though it was rubbish will actually keep it. It's paradoxical. What Jesus is saying is that however we might feel about our lives, happy, sad, or indifferent, the only way forward is to spend ourselves in acts of sacrificial love, copying Jesus in the presence of Jesus. Whoever serves me must follow me. Where? To the cross. And where I am, my servant will also be. Where? On a cross. My father will honor the one who serves me. There is no ministry except that it is cross-shaped. And there is no victory except through the cross. So I guess my question for us this morning is, do, do we actually understand that? 
Do we, do we understand that? Because the one who insists upon their rights doesn't understand it. The one who rejoices in material wealth doesn't understand it. The one who boasts in position, privilege, or power doesn't understand it. The one who experiences pleasure at the downfall of others, especially others who had opposed them, they don't get it either. The one who does nothing when it is in their power to act doesn't understand it. The one who loves money or fails to give generously of what they have doesn't understand it. So let's pray. Here's a prayer. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, for heaven's sake, please, please, please help us to understand this and to do it. And in so doing it, Father, glorify your name and glorify your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.